This is Agent to Agent Remarks. My name is Jeff Lavelle. I am a real estate broker and property manager with The Brokerage, a real estate firm just outside of Las Vegas in Henderson, Nevada. Agent to Agent Remarks are those comments in the multiple listing system that aren't shared with the general public. They're just those private comments between the real estate agents. And so this series is going to focus on fun stories, not so fun stories, and all those little things that you don't always get to hear about. And it's far from reality TV. It's the real part of real estate. So sit back, relax. Let's talk about some real estate. And thanks for stopping by. Well, hello, everybody. Jeff Lavelle here, broker of The Brokerage, a real estate firm, uh, coming to you with our podcast, Agent to Agent Remarks. I am here with a dear friend. Um, I've been hyping it up for the last two episodes, and uh, I'm here with attorney David Sanders of the law offices of David B. Sanders. Um, it stands for Bartholomew. Is that right? Barry, actually. <laughs> my, my dad's name is Barry Sanders, but okay. not the one you're thinking. Oh, the no. the Detroit Lions right. uh, running Reliant. back. Right, so. okay. Mm. Sorry, I had a sip of beverage there. So I am here. Dave and I have been friends for a few years. It started when Dave was the attorney for the local association of realtors, which at the time was the greater Las Vegas Association of Realtors, um, as we like to refer to it, Galvar, um, which has since changed its name to the Las Vegas Realtors, which is Lover. So I don't know if they thought that through. I don't know that they did. There's also Las Vegas Recycling. And everywhere I go in town, I see dumpsters with LVR on the side. So, I mean, maybe just not the best choice, but, you know, hey, not your problem anymore. I, you know, I think there's a lot of well-meaning people who volunteer down there. And I, I don't know if they knew about Las Vegas recycling, but, uh, <laughs> you know, there there was a, you know, GLVR, Galvare, right. um, you know, who knew how to pronounce who, who the knew? acronym? Glover. I heard people call it Glover. So, um, Dave, you and I met because you were the count, you were counsel for the association of realtors and I am annoying for many people because I have a lot of questions. And so I would often darken your doorstep with, uh, questions, um, about our industry because I became a broker. Oh, it's going to be, yeah, three years ago in August. And I realized fairly early on in my broker role that a lot of what I learned over the years, be it from past brokers or other agents, but primarily from past brokers, that I was wrong about a lot of things, not major things, but that there were things I thought about our industry and procedure and things that were not correct. So yeah, you were one of those people who I would come and harass asking if this was actually the way I should be teaching my agents. Well, I I, I don't think you had stupid questions. I, I believe there are actually two stup- stupid questions in the world. The first one is uh, when you call the Internal Revenue Service and say, isn't it about time you audit me? Uh, the second stupid question is you've been pulled over by the Highway Patrol for speeding. And the officer says, I will let you go. And you respond, is it in fact ethical for you to let me off with a warning when I was speeding? <laughs> Beyond that, I think every question is valid. That's when your legal ethics go out the window, right? <laughs> you just much. keep you keep quiet. And pretty I much. actually have a speed. Oh my gosh. I, as, as you say that, I realize I have a speeding ticket and I think my court date was 525. So I'm going to have to uh, make a phone call later today <laughs> and see what we can do about that. Um, so before I go to bench warrant. Um, I'm not sure if traffic services is open. Yet. Well, that's what I'm going to go off of. I'm going to blame COVID and uh, generally the state of affairs today. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Uh, so Dave, you uh, you have been an attorney for six months. How long have you been an attorney? Uh, I passed the bar exam in Nevada in 2001. So it'll be uh, 19 years in October. Jeez Louise, yeah. you don't even look old enough to be an attorney. <laughs> uh, so 19 years uh, in Nevada and you now is that when you got your law degree or is that when you passed the Nevada? Uh, law degree in June of 2001, passed okay. the bar exam in October. Okay. And that's a hard bar to pass. Uh you, it, it, t- traditionally, it is. Uh, back when I took the bar exam, uh, Nevada was a very interesting legal landscape. Uh, UNLV was just having its first graduating class that year. Yep. They only offered the bar exam once a year versus twice. Right. So um, traditionally, the bar rate was uh, pretty low, but- uh, The bar was set pretty low. <laughs> the pass rate was set pretty low. I'll, I'll leave it at that. So. So, I, so that brings me to two interesting points. One, um, I don't know what year my mom graduated, William S. Boyd. Um, she, 
she and I were at UNLV at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, I was getting my undergraduate in psychology and political science, and she was getting her law degree. She had a, a bachelor's in sociology of all things from USC. But um, she went to night school at Boyd. Yeah. It took four years when it was amazing. She did a Boyd, great job. Boyd's a great school. And, you know, I, I will admit I was not as brave as that initial uh, – graduating class of boy, they offered me a, a scholarship to come down. But uh, unfortunately, it was all pending a American Bar Association, the ABA approval. Right. And, they weren't, uh, uh, they it, weren't accredited yet? Yeah, is that what they, it is? Because okay. it takes them, they had to go through and get a graduating class and have okay. a certain percentage pass the bar exam. Okay. What happens is if you go to a law school that isn't ABA approved, you can practice in the state. So you could practice in Nevada. Okay. But if you wanted to leave you'd have to go back to law school to a different ABA oh my school. Gosh. And I, at the time, didn't foresee myself being in, in Nevada permanently. Sure. So I was not as brave as that original class to take that risk. I, I decided to go elsewhere. So, Well, that yeah, that, I, now that you mentioned that it is brave, I didn't realize that they were that restrictive if you didn't. But So let me ask you this then. I mean, this is way off topic, but if you graduated – your school wasn't accredited, and then maybe a few years later was accredited. Does that retroactively cover you, do you I, think? Or? I believe so. Okay. They generally have a certain period of time. Um, California has a lot of them. You have a lot of law schools that are not accredited by the ABA. So you know you can go to law school and practice in California, but not go anywhere else. Yeah, and California is its own world, basically. That, so. that it is. So. <laughs> well, let me ask you this then. So uh, you mentioned um, that you passed the bar. You went to Boyd. Um, and that they only offer the exam once a year. I think now they offer it twice a year. Yes. At least they did when my mom took yes. it because she was terrified she wouldn't pass the first time, which she did. But um, there you go, mom. Shameless plug. That's a, that's uh, a valid fear. <laughs> she's my one listener. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the – but the point was – so I've I've said for years. Now, Realtors, uh, real estate licensees. So for those of you who don't know, a Realtor is a member of the National Association of Realtors and then usually their state and local body as well. I mean, you have to be, right? So um, we are a, a membership-based organization that ascribes to a certain code of ethics, to um, different rules and regulations in various parts of our industry, m- multiple listing service and whatnot. And, and, but, but first, you have to obtain a license from the state that you live in to practice real estate. So not every real estate agent is a realtor, uh, but every realtor is a real estate licensee. So that's the, distinguish, uh, the, 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 the distinguishing feature there. So I've always – so when I started in real estate, I was, it was 2004, and I went to summer school at Key, Realty, Key Real Estate with Teddy Fedowitz, Mutta. And Teddy – I was sitting in class, and this uh, you know pretty young girl was sitting next to me. I was a handsome young guy at the time. You, uh, you, you still are. I, well, thank you. Thank you. And I sat there, and we were chit-chatting, trying to kind of get the, the nervousness out before class, and I said something – that spawned her to say that she was taking her exam for the 18th time. And the look that you have right now is, <laughs> is pretty much <laughs> what I had. Um, and I, I said, you know, I kind of giggled. I was like, Oh, <laughs> and then I realized she wasn't kidding. Yeah. And I thought to myself, it's probably not for you. Like I, this probably isn't a business that you are cut out for. And so that brings me to my point, which is, I think that the state needs to, one, which they have, make it a higher requirement to become a realtor, a real estate licensee. But two, I think in Nevada, if you fail to pass the bar the first time, you can take it a second time. If you fail it the second time, I'm told you have to appear before the bar and explain why you should be permitted to test a third time. And I may, maybe I'm wrong. I- I, I honestly don't know. I, I had a very similar experience to you when I took the Nevada bar for the first time. Uh, it was back then, it was all written out by hand and paper. So, you know, you had one large table that two people shared, and the person across the way from me had admitted that he was taking the Nevada bar for his fifth time. Oh now, gosh. back then, they only offered the bar exam Once every year. year. So he'd been trying to pass for half a decade. Um, that's crazy. And then after we finished the exam, the bar exam, I don't know how you, you obviously know how it works, but um, there's a potential for like 18 to 24 subjects. You don't really know what's going to be on the test. They're, you're given a fact scenario, and then you're basically told to basically find, you know, what are the causes and what are the remedies? So you have to be able to figure out what the question is actually talking about and then answer it. And after the second exam was finished, 
And this guy and our answers were about as polar opposite as humanly possible. <laughs> I just stopped talking to him because I was like not going through the mind game of who, you know, who was right, <laughs> Miss, uh, you know, Mister. I failed five times, or uh, or me. I, right. I didn't want to do that, but but you know, I do think that for the purposes of real estate, one of the biggest uh, pros and cons of being a real estate professional is a relatively low bar of entry. Right. Uh, it does allow people who take the exam 18 times. Um, there are also, but at the same time, I've seen real estate professionals who may or may not have come from a lot of, you know, academic world who are incredibly successful. Right, so right. It, 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 it's a double-edged sword there, but I certainly think that, that increasing, um, the requirements for education, um, or having something a little more rigorous than the post program, which right. is the, the classes that the real estate professionals have to take after they graduate could certainly do something to, to help the professionalism of your industry. And I'm, I'm encouraged, you know, because I do think that they are taking steps to, um, make our, testing our industry more accountable. Um, you know, that at the board level, I sit on the grievance committee, as you know. Um, and for those of you that don't know, grievance is, you know, if you have a problem with a realtor um, as, a, as a member of the public, or if you as a realtor have a problem with another realtor, um, we all agree to submit to uh, discipline or at least investigation by the grievance committee and then the professional standards committee. So we're kind of like the the grand jury of our board of realtors. And so uh, it's interesting to see a lot of the allegations that come through. It's, it's wildly uh, educational. Um, a lot of times you sit there scratching your head thinking, when, where did this person think this was anywhere remotely okay. And other times you sit there and think, why is this person in front of us right now? What what did they do wrong? And so it's interesting to see not only the, the accusations that are made, but obviously the deliberation that happens within our group to discuss whether they were right or wrong. But um, I'm I'm happy to see the people that are in the committee, how little tolerance they have for nonsense. You know, they are holding other members accountable. And we never get to hear what happens. So who knows? But um, hopefully the real estate division uh, can catch up on their cases because <laughs> I know they're like two years behind in the in they, the hearings. They were two years behind before COVID. So I, oh, you know, yeah. I can't imagine. I, I don't, they're I don't gonna even want to know. Speed up anytime soon. I don't even want to know. So you moved here uh, from, we were talking before we started, you moved here from Oregon. Yes. Okay. Portland. Portland, which is, I mean, changed a little bit i think probably since you lived there it seems it it, it was uh it was a great town in in, two, in in the late 90s early 2000 it's it's completely blown up isn't that where fish is from yes it is right yes. okay all right sorry <laughs> it's completely blown up it's it, it, it's a it's it's a really a grown town. i i never had any plans to leave my my dad was in the air force but originally is from oregon and uh i fell in love with it but uh uh, there were no jobs. And believe it or not, in Nevada, in Las Vegas in 2001, there was a shortage of lawyers, if you can imagine. A shortage such a place. of lawyers. I know. No one believes me. Not anymore. But in 2001, there that's was what we a call the good old days. Yeah, it is. <laughs> or Neverland. That is also a valid answer. So it, it, I, I came here thinking I would. Uh, you know, come pay my student loans back, get three or four years of experience, and and move away. And clearly, I didn't do that. So you didn't move away. You uh, laid down roots here. You have a daughter who is uh, going to be graduating high school soon, and uh, you have a lovely lady, and uh, just all good things here. You're not leaving. We've got you trapped in our. We've got our hooks into you. The the most recent hook is season tickets to the Las Vegas Aviators. So assuming they ever play again, assuming uh, we ever get back out <laughs> into public, I actually am trying to get. Um, I you know, in my genius, I've lived here for thirty years. And I've seen the Las Vegas Avalanche. I've seen the Las Vegas Thunder. I've seen the Wranglers. I've seen many iterations of our hockey league here. And so when they announced the Las Vegas Golden Knights, I don't know if you've heard of them. Um, they <laughs> they announced that these they have these fairly inexpensive season tickets. And I said to myself, pish posh. Yeah. Who needs tickets to the Las Vegas Golden Knights? Um, they aren't. We're going to do the same thing we did with the the three I just mentioned. And um, so we know how that ended. Um, I did not get tickets. I have been to the one game because I can't, you know, afford those sorts of, uh, uh, frivolities, but love our VGK. However, I did throw my name in that for what will probably be too expensive. Uh, but the seats over for our 
uh, our uh, AHL team. Oh, the uh, Henderson Silver Knights? Silver Knights, yeah. yeah, I think so, which is great. You know, we yeah. are the Silver State. Um, and California is the golden state. So, you know, it's nice to have a little, yeah. you know, what is it? Alchemy. <laughs> um, so I, I love the logo. I love what they're, but anyway, um, so I, I missed out on that ship, but hopefully I'll get some season tickets to this AHL yeah. league, which should be fun to watch. Yeah. I just enjoy hockey now. One of the things, the reasons why I picked the office space that I have in Summerlin is I share at the parking lot with the Golden Knights That's practice right. facility. You and are. You're when the they were open, I would usually spend one day a week over at, there's a restaurant on the second floor um, that yeah. uh, you can watch the practice. And uh, um, it uh, it became a regular thing that I would go and sit at this one spot. You can sit at a bar and watch them practice. And, and uh, after about three weeks, I realized it was me and the NHL scouts for the other teams that were playing the Golden Knights all sitting together, <laughs> which kind of made me feel a bit of a trait, a turncoat. But right? uh, it's, uh, yeah, I never thought that I would become a hockey fan in, in, in. Well, that's desert, when you but. just start saying things like, yeah, Flurry's not very good. I think he's on his way out. You know, you just kind of <laughs> like undercut them act. You just say a a lot. And they'll think you're a Canadian scout and, and they'll think, oh, yeah, he must know something we don't. It was the suit, actually. <laughs> I came in in a suit and they were like, it's, it's you know, somebody coming in for a, you know, it's a, it's Mackenzie Rivers, the name of the place. There's my shameless plug that there I will get no remuneration <laughs> for. Um, but the food's surprisingly good um, for a, a spot like that. And it was uh, – you know, I would go in there and watch hockey on a regular basis. And I, I had the opposite effect. I've been to three, four hockey games and they lost the first three, including my first one, which was game five of the Stanley Cup. Oof. So my friends who let me mooch off of their season tickets pulled me aside <laughs> after the third loss. Like you have one more shot and don't, then we're, we're dropping you. Reba, you're, you're, you're uh, you know, Reba yes. Gray, right? Uh, she is a, a member of my team. Well, she's not anymore. She's her own team now. And that's what I love about being a broker is I, you know, off the cuff, but Reba was my first team member. Mm -hmm. And over the last, uh, you know, decade, I've watched her grow to her own team, you know, and I'm, I'm, people have said, well, aren't you upset? I'm so thrilled. And I think any broker should be happy that their people move on. But my point is, um, she is not allowed to watch the VGK because when she watches, <laughs> um, I think she has to watch in a mirror or something. So she's not directly, yeah. uh, you know, averting her gaze uh, because whenever she watches, they lose. So I, I was slightly disappointed that they did win the last one because the business entrepreneur person in me was like, maybe I should approach the Golden Knights to start watching their opponents become fans <laughs> of, I don't know, San Jose Sharks. <laughs> right. Use my powers for good, not evil. Be but. a big Kings fan. Now, right? <laughs> so I, I want to get on. So I'm a big law nerd, right? I come from a family of lawyers. Well, my mom's a lawyer now. She was a law enforcement officer before that. Um, my dad's a lawyer and <clears throat> my, I think my great grandfather was a lawyer. But anyway, um, I was smart enough not to become one because <laughs> I, no, I'm kidding. Probably true. Uh, I was dumb enough to become a realtor. But the, I get a lot of... I like rules, right? I, I'm, a, I'm a rule follower generally, and my agents know that. And part of why they like to work here is because they know I keep their files in order. Um, and this will be exhibit A for the real estate division if I'm ever <laughs> <laughs> brought in front of the commission. But the uh, so, so you're probably familiar with a little known rule, 12 U.S. Code or 12 U.S.C. Section 2608 title companies. And one of the things that we have been – has been drilled into us – as agents is that the listing agent, uh, the seller, uh, their seller's agent does not have the right to direct or otherwise choose the title company with some caveats. And I have been in many disagreements, many discussions, polite and otherwise, with agents and brokers and title reps as to why this is our rule. You know, we do stick by that. We don't as a listing agent, direct the title company. Now, if we have a situation, for example, I have a client that lives in Canada. She notarized her deed before she left the States right before COVID. Um, so we have a, a special circumstance and I've asked the agents on the other side of the transaction that have been interested in the property to call and discuss the title company with me. Um, and I've said, look, here's the situation we have. We're not sure with social distancing if we can get a, uh, a Canadian notary, et cetera, et cetera. Is your client averse to Tycor title or ABC title or Fidelity National, whatever? Um, and is your client a 
have a problem with that. Um, and that's been well received, but generally we don't, we don't, uh, direct the title company. So my question to you is, do I need to take this out of the podcast now? No. no, no. <laughs> As counsel, do I need to take this off the podcast and edit it out? Um, no, but I guess my, uh, I've had people say that as long, and, and obviously there are some caveats and I'll let you explain those caveats, but, um, you have a fun phrase and I try to remember what it is about being first. Yes. So first of all, I, I, before we get to the fun phrase, I'm going to give the caveat that will protect the podcast and Please. myself. I, I am not giving legal advice. These are my opinions only. If you have questions about what we're about to talk about, RESPA, title, or any other real estate related legal issues, please seek out and speak to your own attorney. And this is not intended in any way, shape, or form to be legal advice. Now, so um, one of the things that, that realtors love to do is they love to ask for bright, shiny lines. I want to rule. If I do A, am I going to be okay? If I yes. Be okay. Yes. Well, you from a family of lawyers know that the law doesn't work like that. It's right. usually not a bright, shiny line. And um, what I like to joke with people is, is finding out precedent. Like there will be, there's been a lot of case law nationwide that we can talk about, which we will talk about related to uh, buyer's choice of real estate related service products. Um, nationwide that haven't been decided in Nevada. And, and I like to joke with people that there are times in life you want to be first. You want to be first at the DMV. Yes. You want to be first when Disneyland reopens. <laughs> Finding out if you have violated federal law related to the selection of a title company, let a real estate agent in Reno do that first. <laughs> uh, and so that that's part of it. So uh, what we're talking about is a, a federal law known as RESPA. And I like to joke that real estate professionals like acronyms almost as much as the military. Uh, and <laughs> yes. so RESPA means real estate uh, related service product act. And it basically came down in the mid 1970s. And it says that a buyer, generally speaking, gets to pick their related service products. They get to pick their uh, lender. They get with certain exclusions. They get to pick their title rep. They get to pick the home warranty company. They get to pick their um, inspectors, their inspectors and, all yeah. those things. And because what was happening in the prior to this law was there was a lot of pressure for the seller by the seller or the seller's agent for the buyers to pick certain people that may or may or not have been in their best interest. And when you take a half step back, a real estate transaction is generally speaking, most people's largest purchase. Sure. And it has the most exposure to them financially. And, and it's going to be where they raise their kids and all those kinds of fun things. And the idea behind this was the buyer should be in charge of these decisions because the buyer is the one who's going to have to live with it after the transaction is over. I always tell my buyers, you know, they get, they get, um, they say, oh, I'm sorry. We're taking so long. Oh, I'm sorry. We're, we're having trouble deciding. And I always tell them, look, this is not a pair of jeans. You can't get a different size. You can't change the color. You can't alter it, uh, you know, to some degree. Um, so yeah, take your time. And like you said, it's the biggest purchase. Yep. So, um, what RESPA, generally speaking, does is it basically says that the buyer gets to choose. Now, there are some exceptions to that, which we will discuss, but generally speaking, the buyer gets to select. And the thing that people, real estate professionals, need to realize is what the standard of review a court's going to be looking at. Ooh, standard of review. That sounds terrifying. I know it does. <laughs> but this is, this is the scenario. The law is designed that a buyer doesn't have to choose between their dream home and their legal rights. Okay. Yeah. Meaning that that they can go a lot they can decide to purchase the home mm -hmm. and then bring a respa action up to 1 year after the close of escrow uh, and then report you to the federal government and the feds have 3 years to come after you for that violation so so if I, brokers out there had trouble sleeping before yes if brokers don't have trouble sleeping on a regular basis, <laughs> just from reading Nevada Revised Statute 645, I can't help you. Yeah, right. um, the, so the idea is that in, in the analysis we're looking at is in the buyer's eyes, in the buyer's opinion, if I don't go along with this, I won't get the house. Right. And so that is a very – if I was a seller's agent who was doing these kinds of things, that's a very terrifying standard of review. You know, which is why we talk about you know the language that that is put into a listing that requires it. Uh, there are a few exceptions, and the first biggest one is um, a letter of prequalification. Um, you can request a letter of prequalification from uh, a seller. Can request it from a lender that the seller asks, as long as the buyer has the right to 
fund the loan with any provider they want. And that's always been an interesting thing to me too, because you know, you are you are asking a buyer, and I and I've gone round and round with people on this too, but you are asking a buyer to provide confidential information to have credit pulled in some cases, which can affect the credit score, especially if it's in a marginal uh, bracket. Um, so, you know, as a listing agent, I feel like if, if somebody comes to me and it's, it's, I can verify through the, the buyer's lender that everything is on the up and up, but at the same time, I've verified that things are on the up and up and I've had lenders that have just lied. And so I'm also always concerned with agents that want you to use pre-qualify with their preferred lender in air quotes, which people can't see me making with my finger claws here. Um, But in the air quotes sense that I also think a lot of time it's a partnership with the listing agent and their preferred lender to direct business to the preferred lender so that that lender can undercut and steal, again in air quotes, the buyer from the other lender. Uh, So this is a a scenario that that is – something that I like to talk with with businesses and real estate professionals on a regular basis. Uh, legally, you can ask for a pre-qualification letter from whoever you want to. Okay. That is within your legal rights. Now, you've just identified several business issues that could cause problems. If, sure. if the buyer is right on the edge of, of financing, doing this additional pre-qual could actually torpedo your deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so – the hard part becomes is is if you know who is the person asking for this request. If it is a seller, then that's a different story. Hypothetically, if I owned a title company and I'm selling my home, me requesting that you use my title company because I own it mm-hmm. might be legitimate. Um, most of the time, and the, the things that scary that, that frighten me the most is when you have the buyer makes the offer identifies the title company, identifies the escrow officer. And the one and only thing in the counter from the seller's agent is mm-hmm. we want it with this place. Right. And which begs the question of, did the seller really ask you to make this request? Right. You know, do you have the, cause if you get sued, the question's going to be, you know, where's the email? Where's the confirmation from right. the seller saying, no, you must use this title company. Um, you are probably more familiar with this than I am, but I can't imagine that that is an issue that buyers and sellers genuinely care about. Rarely. Rarely. You know, I can count on one and a half hands. Either the buyer was an employee of said title company or they were a family member of an employee at said title company. And then that begs the question of impartiality. You know, if this is a neutral third party, which the, the design of escrow is to, you know, only uh, – perform mutually agreed upon instructions to the escrow company. I always worry, you know, I always worry, is there some, um, is there some reason that we should be worried? And the only reason I've ever, and I've, everybody's got their preferences, right? You know, you have your preferred, uh, coffee shop, you have your preferred grocery store, you have your preferred car wash. Um, I have my preferred title company and, but, but the reason, and this is what I've tried to articulate to other agents, the reason that they are my favorite is because they have the largest claims reserves in the United States. And so the whole purpose, the reason that they exist is because they have claims reserves to fund a claim should one be be brought to them. And I've asked agents, well, do you know what your title company's claims reserves are? Do you know how often they pay out? You know what the process is for paying out a, res- a claims reserve uh, or, or a claim against the title policy. So that's always been my loyalty is to their ability to perform the tasks that they're hired for. Now, since you brought that up, this is a great opportunity to discuss this. Um, you as a real estate professional have every right and it is totally lawful under RESPA for you to provide information to your client about your experiences with various title companies. Right. That is, that is permissible by law. Um, so that isn't anything. So you can certainly give that, that opinion. Um, the other thing that I think is really interesting about the title company that you choose is, you know, how do they handle earnest money disputes? Mm-hmm. Um, 
particularly right now with COVID, because uh, you Jeez, have yeah. a you have a mediation provision in the real estate uh, purchase agreement that's used primarily in Southern Nevada, um, but there aren't a whole lot of mediations going on right now. Right. Uh, the Regional Justice Center is still closed as of this morning, as of yesterday. Um, the Realtors Association isn't taking them, but you have a mediation provision that under Nevada law, you have to exhaust before you can bring a lawsuit. And that's not just in our contract. You've told me before that's statutory. That, that's, yeah, that's state law. That it, the case law that if you have a mediation provision, you have to exhaust it. Right now, you have problems because there's not a whole lot of venues. Um, there are other mediation services that are out there, but um, typically speaking, they become incredibly cost prohibitive when you're fighting over $2,000. Right. Um, so, but what another wrinkle here is how does the title company handle this? You know, how long are they willing to hold the money? Because if they 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 don't necessarily have to hold the funds indefinitely. There's a process known as interpleading the funds, which is where the title company or somebody who holds money that they're not sure who is entitled to. You know, typically in an earnest money dispute, buyer says I'm entitled to it, give it to me. Seller says I'm entitled to it, give it to me. So the title company doesn't give it to anybody because they don't want to get sued. Well, how do they get out of that? They go down to the courthouse, they file a lawsuit. It's called an interpleading action where they turn the money over to the court and they say judge we don't know who's entitled to this 5,000, 10,000, 20,000. Buyer says they're entitled to it. Seller says they're entitled to it. You guys figure it out. We've noticed them. They can come down and make their arguments in front of you, judge. Oh, and by the way, we're going to take our $2,000 of attorney's fees off the top, which they can by statute. Mm -hmm. at, you can't challenge to whether or not that's excessive or not. Wow. So your $5,000 earnest money deposit becomes a $3,000 fight. <laughs> so I, I think speaking to the title company as to what is their policy on how long do they hold those funds? Is it is it 60 days after an issue? Is it 90 days? Is it six months? Uh, you know, particularly, even after we get out of COVID and the courts are open back up, there's going to be a massive backlog, backlog. for all of these yeah, things. That's what we're um, terrified about. You know, and just talking about not only a backlog from the cases that haven't been there, the cases that are on hold, and then social distancing within those hearings, this isn't going to go away relatively quickly. I mean, to put it in perspective, the district courts in Southern Nevada have canceled trials, jury trials for the foreseeable future. That brings up a question about we're holding people in detention prior to their case being heard. And so these are pretrial incarcerations that yes i mean that that brings up a whole constitutional argument which, I would which essentially what it means is is when they reopen civil uh, jury trials the priority pursuant to the u.s constitution will be criminal matters mm. so when are civil trials when are civil issues going to get back Jeez. i don't know um so not to divert too far away from respa but <laughs> that would be something you'd want to talk about with your title companies yeah. is what is their policy on holding those funds because I, I can't tell you how quickly this is going to come back. Even when everything opens, there's going to be additional social distancing. There's going to be the backlog. I mean, to kind of put it in perspective, um, when I was with the Realtor Association, we handled about 200 cases a year through professional standards. They haven't been able to hear a case for at least three months. Right. So you have all the cases that were scheduled for those three months that will need to be rescheduled. We have 20 cases backlogged right now and three arbitrations. So how long is that going to take? Right. Plus figuring out the social distancing to have those hearings mm -hmm. actually occur. Um, I don't know. So having these conversations with your title company, making sure that you understand what they're doing is a part of, I think, giving your client good advice. So back to the buyer's position. The buyer, If the buyer feels they have to do this or they won't get the house, that's the analysis. So then the question comes down to what type of language are, is the seller using when they're making these quote unquote recommendations. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if in the agent to agent remarks, <laughs> it, 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 it says, uh, you know, buyer shall use or escrow shall be. Well, legally shall means must. Right. So in that scenario, all you've really done is provided written verification of your intent to violate RESPA. Um, and agents are so nonchalant about it because I'll call them up and say, hey, you know, I, I've given my buyer three choices of title companies. They've chosen uh, one that they would like to use. Notice I said three, right? Yeah. Uh, they, they've chosen the one they want to use. Uh, and you're telling us we have to use this one. Well, you have to use this one because blah, 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 blah. So, you know, and I've had agents. <laughs> Let me tell you a quick story that I think is hilarious. 
and you may think it's petty and people listening will probably think I'm a jerk. <laughs> so I had a well, buyer. With that lead in, how can I say no? Right. How could you say no? So I had a buyer that wanted to use a specific title company and, and we had gone round and round because she'd purchased homes before. She was not naive to the title company's role. Um, and we, you know, she decided upon this particular title company and the seller was demanding. I mean, there was no, you know, a lot of times in a negotiation back and forth, you'll call the other agent up and say, look, is this really a deal killer? You know, are you going to really kill the deal over your title company preference? Cause let's be honest, title company preference is 99% of the time, the agent trying to do their friend at the title company a favor. And again, without any real backing. No title, you know, the, 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 the fees or the, the claims reserve we talked about. So they said, yes, it's a deal killer. Okay. We agreed to their counter offer, of course, made them counter it. I wasn't going to just put it in the offer, made them counter offer it. And then when we got the escrow accepted and we got the counter offer signed and everything was good because my buyer didn't want to lose the home. The caveat, the key there was she didn't want to lose the home for the escrow company. I sent an addendum over that said, uh, uh, subject to 12 USC 2508 title companies, the RESPA Act, uh, you know, the seller agrees to pay the buyer in escrow three times the cost of all title related charges and escrow fees, or the seller agrees to move the title to ABC title, the title and escrow to ABC title. That listing agent's assistant called, he was licensed, called me up and read me the riot act. He's cussing at me and what the F is wrong with you? And, you know, why, you know, why can't you just do what we need you to do and this, that, and the other? I said, because it's my client's decision and you are violating her rights under RESPA. Well, I said, look, get it signed for me or let me know how you want to handle it and we can, we can go from there. And he said, take out the language about the three times damages and we'll move it to your title company. So, you know, it, again, people are going to look at that as probably being a little petty, but I represent my client's best interest and this is what she wanted. So section nine of RESPA is the section that, that, that addresses these types of scenarios and it has to do with- Now, folks, he has no book in front of him. He didn't look at his phone. He didn't <laughs> Google anything. He just knows this stuff off the top. Section nine. Which okay. means I have no life. Um, <laughs> And why I'm, and we're, and we're going to talk about all the horrible things that will happen to you for violating RESPA, which is why I'm never invited to parties. So, um, so section nine of RESPA, when you mentioned three times, that's the statutory damages pursuant to federal law. Any violation of this, you're entitled to three times your damages plus attorney's fees and costs and those kinds of things. Um, so that's not unusual. Um, forwarding over the to the seller's agent the section of RESPA. Now, there is, there is an exception. In addition to the three times damages, there is an exception to this. If the seller feels so adamant that they will use this specific service provider, um, the seller, so long as they pay every single penny related to that service provider, um, that is not a violation of RESPA. If the seller takes all the finances, what the seller cannot do is demand that a buyer use a specific real estate related service provider and then demand that the buyer pay for it. So that is the wrinkle. So if you feel absolutely sure that that, you know, eagle eye inspections and I don't know if there's an eagle eye inspections, this is <laughs> not an endorsement. I was right, just right, making right. something up uh, is the best. If inspection there isn't, company, though, there should be. If, if not, someone's running to the secretary of state's <laughs> website to record it right now. Um, and, uh, you know, if I'm so adamant that they I want them to be used, I can pay for it. That's that's the exclusion. Right. Now, the fun thing is that real estate agents need to realize something and, and God bless you for all of this, because they always think that they can just write an addendum to get out of this. Now, well, that's how I sell my cocaine. Yes. Is so, I have a contract. So, that <laughs> so, um, so you cannot contract out of statutory rights. You can't. For example, for real estate professionals, NRS 116, the resale package, it is state law that the seller has to pay for that. You can't contract Pish out. Pish posh, David. Sorry. Pish posh. Now, now, no. Trust me. I mean, if you could contract out of statutory obligations, um, you know, I got, you know, then the scenario when I was pulled over for going 120 and I told the uh, highway patrolman, I have a contract that says that there's a envelope around my vehicle that the speed limit is always 120 miles an hour, irregardless of school zones and old people. Um, right. it, it, it doesn't work. 
You can't get out of this. So even if you put some kind of language in there saying, you know, where the parties agree to waive this, all you're really doing is providing evidence of your intent to violate federal right. law. Right. Um, so you don't, you know, but again, the, the issue comes down to real estate related services. If, if uh, you know, it, 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 and that's, that definition can get hazy. For example, there was class action lawsuits out of the state of California involving the use of a delivery service. Uh, a title company, a prominent one in Southern California, required everybody to use FedEx because they had a FedEx account and they oh. got a discount. And the federal judge ruled that that was a RESPA violation because in the sense that they were providing documents related to a real estate transaction, FedEx in that scenario was a RESPA. Uh, a service provider. Uh, so you need to be careful about that. Now, I don't see- It seems like such a innocuous component to a real estate related services, but I can see where that's- It was a seven figure judgment. Jeez Louise. Because they got class action, they got attorney's fees, the whole nine. Uh, RESPA has two primary um, uh, enforcement actions. They have the private right, meaning that you're, the buyer never has to choose between their dream home, the purchase- and their RESPA rights. What happens is they can agree to your the seller's terms, and then they have a year after the property is closed to turn around and sue you for your RESPA violations and request that three times damages we've talked about earlier. The other option is that the federal government through the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau can bring an action up to three years after the fact. And they actually do have a website where you can go in and anonymously file complaints for RESPA violations. So I think it is www.ratoutyourrealtor.org. I'm kidding. It's not that. So uh, they do have that ability. Now, um, you know, if we were having this conversation, Jeff, in, in 2013 and 2014, this would be a very, very different enforcement environment. Uh, the CFPB at that time was extremely aggressive with RESPA uh, violation cases, and they were bringing um, several administrative actions across the country. Um, part of that was because how the CFPB was created. And in 2014 and 15, I would make the argument that the second most powerful person in the federal government was the director of the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, mm. right behind the president. Right. Because the CFPB is not funded by Congress. Oh, yes. It's funded the by The CFPB yes. is funded by its enforcement actions. It's fines. Yeah. So they were bringing in tens and tens of millions of dollars uh, on these enforcement actions uh, for violations of various things that were going directly to their coffers. So uh, the other interesting thing was is that the CFPB uh, director could only be removed by for cause. Unlike the Secretary of Defense or the Secretary of State that serve at the pleasure of the president, right. um, they could only be removed for cause. And cause is like you know, committing a felony or something along those Which lines. Which people so, in Washington never do. No, I have, <laughs> I have no comment on any political affiliations. So it, it was very a different world. Now, yeah. a couple of things happened there. First was, of course, the change in, in the uh, – presidential administration that dramatically changed the enforcement actions. Um, you could certainly say, regardless of, of political point, that the current administration is far more business-friendly than the previous administration. Uh, the second is, is that there was a massive lawsuit um, brought against a what is known as a, a mortgage insurance company. Uh, when you get a mortgage um, you, of course, have your insurance to cover the home, but the mortgage company gets insurance to make sure that if Dave Sanders doesn't pay his mortgage, they're not out of money. Um, uh, if you remember during the economic crash when AIG, the insurance company, just completely melted down, yep. it's because they were primarily the ones who gave this type of insurance and then every mortgage company under the sun started asking for money and they just did not have the reserves. Um so there was a company that was selling this type of insurance, and they were requiring um, that uh, that in order to get your mortgage, you had to use their mortgage insurance company. And so they brought an action, an administrative action, the um, the CFPB against these people. And an administrative action is a kind of a fancy way for it's the federal equivalent of a real estate division hearing. Um, so you that have an administrative hearing, you have an division. administrative law judge who <laughs> makes this decision, and the administrative law judge ruled down. And I'm, and you know, for those of you who are legal technicals, this is from memory. Please pull the case later on if you'd like. Uh, these are generalities. Uh, they determined, yep, you know, you violated you violated RESPA, um, and we're going to give you a. I wanted to say it was like an eighteen million dollar fine. Which is a lot of money. Yeah. 
So they appealed. Now, in administrative cases, the appeal doesn't go to the Supreme Court or a judge. It goes to the head of the bureau. So if you file an appeal under the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, it goes to the director, who at the time was 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 Director Codroy, who was very much a advocate against the real estate industry. And his decision was, you don't owe us eighteen million, you owe us like a hundred and three. Mm. million dollars. And, seems punitive. and it was very punitive. And he also said stuff like, we don't care what, no, prior to the creation of the CFPB, um, uh, RESPA was enforced by HUD. And that's a lot of acronyms in one sentence, <laughs> uh, the housing and administrative development. And, and HUD would issue regulations. They would say, hey, if you do this stuff, you'll be fine. Don't do this, you'll get in trouble. Uh, the CFPB didn't do that at the time. They were kind of like, well, Tell us what you did, and we'll tell you if you were in trouble. <laughs> which, as a parent, is a phenomenal yeah, skill that's a, set. That's actually great. Uh, not so much for uh, civil rights, but um, so what. Coldroy did was saying, "Look, we don't care that you relied on HUD's previous decisions. We're not bound by them." Uh, and then they said, "We have the ability to go back not three years from the date of the violation, which is what everyone else would kind of agree." The statute says three years from the date of violation. Codroy took the position of we can go back three years before the CFPB was created. Oh my goodness! And go after you. And so this was, uh, of course, they brought a lawsuit and went into the federal courts after this, and they went to what's known as the District uh, Washington D.C. District Court of Appeals, uh, which is behind the Supreme Court, the second most powerful court in the United That's States. That's where a lot of the the, the Supreme Court justices come yes. from. Yes, it is also the court that hears the appeals from all these type of administrative actions. So mm-hmm. a lot of federal administrative law, federal related issues go through the uh, D.C. Court of Appeals, and uh, in an interesting uh, opinion, they they wrote. You know, they had a very interesting constitutional issue as to whether or not Director Codroy was constitutional under the Article Two. And if you're a nerd like that, we can talk about it off off uh, the podcast. <laughs> I will I will spare you that. Um, but one of the things they talked about was the fact that that the CFPB was disregarding um, all of these existing guidelines. And the analysis that they gave was it was as if you were a tourist to a very metropolitan city, and you came upon a very very busy street. And you walked up to a police officer and you said, tell me how to cross this street legally and safely. And the officer said, sure, go down to that stoplight, cross there. And so you do that. And when you get to the other side, the officer is there giving you a ticket for $1,000 for jaywalking. And so it eviscerated the CFPB's position that uh, they didn't have to be bound by HUD previous guidelines, which Mm. is a huge win for real estate professionals because 2014, 2015, I couldn't tell you if you could rely on the HUD HUD's guidance to keep you safe for RESPA violations. Uh, the court came down and said, no, that that's you have to go by that. So if you're looking at RESPA issues, if you have concerns about RESPA, you can look at the guidelines issued by HUD um, as a way to ensure compliance. So that was big. Um, so the environment for RESPA violations is not nearly as is is prevalent as it once was doesn't mean you can violate RESPA. Right. It just means that that it's 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 not as aggressive as an enforcement issue. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that they won't change. Um, and now, that, if, if, for example, obviously administrations change every four years sometimes, should an administration change and should the next president um, decide to go back to uh, the Obama era <laughs> enforcement, uh, would that leave people open Potentially, potentially to administrative actions that were in, incurred, or you know that, that that happened during the Trump administration. Potentially, um, the thing that I think I would be more worried about if I was a real estate practitioner in Southern Nevada is a class action lawsuit mm-hmm. because the costs of those are so incredibly expensive. I mean, all it would really take is one class action lawsuit against one real estate service provider in Southern Nevada to scare everyone out of their mind. And um, that's where you don't want to be first in line. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> because uh, because those are incredibly expensive. Um, you know, I, I like to joke that I was, uh, I was a part of the uh, – I bought a book from Apple, um, one of their online books. Yes. During, yes. And then, of course, there was that big, big class action lawsuit that Apple was price-fixing books. Right. And they all – 
without admitting liability, the case was settled. And there were millions and millions of dollars set aside, most of which went to the attorneys. I got, I think, a dollar off of a future book purchase for all my troubles. So um, the cost there is related primarily to the attorney's fees and costs. So RESPA violations are- There's an attorney joke in there somewhere. Yes, it, it, probably well <laughs> worth it. Um, the uh, So that's the thing, I think, that I think you need to be careful. Um, there, there's- there is a pre. There is a misconception amongst real estate professionals that that they can that a seller can request that. Um, I'd be very careful with that. Um, if you're a broker and you're listening to this, you need to speak to an attorney on how to comply with this. Um, particularly if you have what I call vertical integration. Um, and vertical integration, aside from just sounding like my next album, um, <laughs> is is a very is an interesting concept where uh, a real estate company owns or a builder owns a mortgage company and they own a title company. You're seeing a lot of that. It is not illegal. It right. is not unlawful. However, there are very specific disclosures that have to be made, and if you follow those disclosures to the letter. You will comply with RESPA. Where we've seen companies get in trouble is when the lawyers get creative and don't literally copy word for word what HUD says you should do. Right. So if you have that scenario, you really need to go speak to an expert on this specific area of law and make sure that you're having those vertical integration policies disclosed um, before the transaction occurs. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but for example, during the short sale days in Nevada, I was very – um, active in, in getting short sales approved and, and homeowners uh, freed of their debt under the Mortgage Debt Relief Act. And one of the disclosures we had was that we were not attorneys, we were not CPAs, we were not giving them legal or tax advice, that they agreed to seek counsel of an attorney or a CPA if they had questions regarding those things. And I stuck to that. You know, I'm not giving people tax or legal advice. That was not my purview. Um, and so I know a lot of real estate agents, though, uh, would have them sign the form and then proceed to give tax and legal advice. And so, you know, you can't have a form signed that says you're not doing something and then do that same thing. That That's a very slippery slope for real estate professionals for a variety of reasons. Um, first of all, uh, NRS 645 protects you as a real estate licensee, and that's Nevada Revised Statute 645. That's uh, the statute that establishes real estate licensees and their requirements, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it protects you with your operating within your scope of expertise. Um, it doesn't protect you if you fall outside that. The other part that becomes difficult, in particularly in Nevada, is the definition of practicing law without a license. The definition of, of practicing law in Nevada by the Supreme Court, and I'm paraphrasing here, is providing advice to any individual on any issue that may impact any legal right. So apparently everyone in the state of Nevada practices law without a license. Especially um, on Facebook. And this, <laughs> no, they're, they're too busy being uh, experts on everything. Healthcare, um, right? Uh, so the scenario in the Supreme Court actually says this in their ruling. This is we're not going to give you a bright, shining lie. This is going to be a gray area. They they literally said this is going to be a scenario upon scenario mm. advice. So let me give you it, – because it, it's Las Vegas, so we have to be salacious. Let me give you an example uh, um, uh, from my legal career of a scenario like this. I had a client who wanted to purchase an Adam and E franchise. And an Adam and E franchise is an adult novelty uh, <laughs> store. Yeah. Yes. Thanks for the, <laughs> the beatbox there. Right. Um, now, those types of businesses are heavily regulated. Uh, even in Nevada um, – where we have legalized prostitution, they're very specialized. You, you you can't just open a type of store like this anywhere. Um, you know, you have to be very clear. And so, as a part of their franchise orientation, they're like, "Look, you need to speak to an attorney. You need to speak to a commercial real estate agent. You need to make sure that you know your business can operate." And so, my client uh, reached out to a commercial real estate agent um, to find a piece of property. And this was two thousand and eight during the, the economic crisis. And the commercial real estate agent found, for those of you in Las Vegas, found a beautiful uh, location in a strip mall right off of uh, Tropicana and the 215, uh, about 150 yards away from a school. Mm. And uh, that's some foreshadowing there if you can't <laughs> catch me. So she asked the real estate- Right next to the gun store, the liquor store, and the <laughs> marijuana dispensary. Yeah, well, you know, it is America. Yeah. Um, so- uh, <laughs> She spoke to a real estate professional and said, are you sure that we can we can uh, open up my business here? And rather than saying, I am not an expert on where you can have an adult store, you should speak to an attorney to find out. 
he took it upon himself and he went to the Clark County Zoning Department. And the zoning department said, there is no preclusions pursuant to zoning for you to put a adult store in this location. So she signed a seven-year multi-million dollar lease. Mm. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with commercial leases, uh, when you breach a commercial lease, they will come after you for the entire amount outstanding. Uh, uh, you know, it's not exempt just like, you know, pay us a month or two of rent and go away. They're going to want the, the rest of the time. And so it was basically, so what happened was she entered the lease and then she went down to the Las Vegas business license department oh, no. to get a business license for her business. And the city looked at her and said, are you insane? We won't let you put that type of a store. Wouldn't that there. be part of due diligence? Like, wouldn't that before you executed your lease, you go and get the licensing? So, up? so this is how we ended up. Um, and this is before my time working for the realtors, so all the realtors don't get angry and try to find where I live and <laughs> track me down. Um, what we did was was my client you know, was starting a new business. There wasn't really a whole lot of, of funds there. The, the, the developer, uh, the owner, the landlord wanted to, to make some money off of this. So to get my client out of liability, we assigned her rights to sue the real estate agent who has, you know, insurance to the landlord. And they mm. ended up paying a six figure settlement to make this case go away. Uh, if the real estate professional had said, I have no idea about your business, adult or otherwise. And uh, you need to verify you can do this. You need to speak to an attorney. If he had put that in writing right. and hadn't taken it upon himself, real estate professionals, God bless you, you like to be the source of all of my information. Right. You want to be that go-to place through the transaction. And in this situation, um, it was a six-figure mistake. And uh, most realtors don't make six figures in And so <laughs> that, that scenario is, is one that if they would have just said in writing, you know, email is fine. I, uh, I don't know. Verify it on your own and tell me how you want to proceed. They would have been fine. Um, so it, it's really, you know, particularly with, with, with Respa, with all your real estate related liability, once you start straying in tax advice, once you start straying into, um, uh, legal advice, you, you run into problems. And the answer is, uh, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I don't even play one on TV. You need to, you need to go talk to somebody. And that, and that's sufficient. Now, what if I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express? And posted Facebook at the same time? <laughs> I, I would say I'm you're getting the next, man. I guess you're getting the next 10 Nobel prizes. <laughs> pick your, pick your own. Uh, you would have that problem and that, and that's the scenario. And, and ironically enough, that's enough to protect you from liability in that situation. If they would have turned bound and said, we were to sue everybody and says, well, we told you to go get legal advice. Here's our email. Right. We don't have any obligation beyond that. Best of luck. Um, that would be a scenario. For example, um, I see it a lot with international purchases. We have a lot of international purchases in Southern Nevada. And, you know, for example, we have a lot of Canadians. Yeah. You, you mentioned one hey. earlier in the podcast, uh, purchasing property here. Um, if you go and speak to a regular Nevada attorney and say, we want to create an entity to own, to hold the property for our Canadian clients, um, to protect them from liability and for tax purposes. Most of the time, a Nevada licensed attorney will say under Nevada law, an LLC is the best vehicle for you. What that Nevada lawyer, run-of-the-mill lawyer, probably doesn't know is that Canadian tax law doesn't recognize an LLC as an entity. Meaning that you're actually creating additional tax exposure. Oh. So if you have foreign clients who are investing. And since we can't drop enough acronyms in this podcast, um, you need to find somebody who's an accountant or an attorney who's familiar with FERPTA. Um, and yes, I keep a list at home to memorize all these um, <laughs> different acronyms that we have, but but uh, to, to protect yourself. And so the scenarios that you have as a real estate agent, there's a lot of liability there. There's a lot of liability for a broker, but the law is set up to protect you from RESPA, from FERPTA, from all kinds of different liability. If you know to stay in your lane and stay within your area of expertise. And if you don't know the answer and it is something that you need to have them verify with an accountant or an attorney or whoever other, other expert, you know, that the key for you is just to disclose, Hey, go talk to this person, um, and, and get your interest. So get the advice that you need. So it, it you know, that's, I think is probably the biggest thing that, that real estate professionals are not really, um, 
educated about as much as I think I wish they would to kind of circling back to your initial discussion um, is how to avoid liability in a real sense. Um, you know, uh, real estate agents try to tendency to be generalists. They, they'll sell you, they want to sell your commercial property. They want to sell your high rise property. They want to sell you your, your $50,000 condo right. and all the way around. And they don't stay in their lane. Um, you know, I, I don't practice tax law. I don't practice family law. I don't do personal injury law. Uh, that is outside my scope of expertise. I'll gladly send you to somebody who does those types of things, but it, 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 you know, for a real estate professional to not be familiar with what their scope is, setting aside the Realtor Code of Ethics Article 11 that requires you to do this, there's some liability protection that, you know, staying within your lane, speaking to your broker um, in advance. Uh, I, I remember uh, getting a phone call when I was the in-house attorney for the realtors from an agent. Uh, he said, so I have a scenario where uh, buyer wanted to uh, occupy the property before the end of the real estate transaction. And the seller had said no. And so the buyer's agent gave them the keys oh. out of the lockbox and let them into the home two weeks early. Jeez. Which is bad enough. And then the buyer couldn't get financing to purchase the home. Oh. And the buyer refused to vacate. And so I'm running through multiple scenarios in my head. I was not expecting the following question. Should I tell my broker what is going on? <laughs> So, well, and that's, you know, that's uh, that statement right there is one of those fears that we as brokers have, which is that your agents are doing something um, that maybe they don't even feel is noteworthy, but is absolutely out of this world unacceptable. And, you know, you, you lose sleep sometimes thinking, gosh, I wonder something said in a conversation rather flippantly from an agent. And you're like, whoa, 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 no, 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 that's, that's not. That's not okay. Um, and, you know, it, it does. It, it, it just, it makes me, it gives me chills. I go, um, well, I used to. I mean, hopefully they'll be back open soon. But every quarter I would attend the real estate division commission hearings. And you get continuing education credits, as you know, for only two of those. Um, but I get broker super, you know, broker management uh, CE credits. But I think it's, I think it should be compulsory. I think the agent should have to attend those hearings to see what goes on, to see the sorts of things that end up landing in the real estate division investigator's hands that then goes to a commission hearing that then in, involves some sort of, in, in, from almost every case I've ever seen, some sort of discipline. And, you know, I was in a case, I was listening to a case a few, maybe it was last year, the realtor was a commercial realtor. I mean, he was a commercial real estate agent. I don't know if he was a realtor, but he was a commercial real estate agent. Um, and his license had lapsed. His license had expired. And in that expired period, I want to say he had been paid by his broker something like $400,000 in commissions. And, you know, first of all, that's an amazing amount of money to receive anyway, but to receive it as a non-licensed person at that point. Um, and he was sitting up there and, and the commission was asking him questions. And, you know, the first thing in my mind was, where's his broker? Like, you know, he was sitting up there by himself, yeah. no attorney present, nothing. And that was one of the first questions out of one of the commissioner's mouths is, where is your broker? And we were just getting ready to go to a break and they actually decided to go to a break early and asked where the broker was. And poor guy was behind me, raised his hand somewhat sheepishly. Um, but, you know, those sorts of things, you you have a broker that didn't even verify his licensee was still licensed. If it makes you feel better, there are lawyers who do that too. Um, oh, so, uh, it doesn't. It, <laughs> um, the, speaking of the real estate division, what is, what is also interesting is in that uh, I've noticed recently um, before, of course, COVID shut down and everything like that. But one of the things that the division is is doing is they're they're charging the respondent, the defendant, if you will, um, the costs for the investigation. Right. So your five hundred dollar fine could turn out to be twenty five hundred bucks or sure. three thousand, depending on that. And that's that's one of those things that you need to factor into um, when you're trying to address the division. I, I I tell clients all the time and real estate professionals that that when you go to the real estate division hearings, there's actually two lawyers in the room. Right. For the division. 
There's the attorney who sits up with the commissioners, who advises the commissioners on policy procedure and I like those him types a lot, of things. By the way, and then there's a career prosecutor right. whose job is to find you guilty, and who has gone to years of school, you know, law school. You, you know, lawyers have to take twelve CE credits or thirteen CE credits every year to maintain our licenses. So you are going up against you know, the same argument that you as a real estate agent, give to a FISBO client. You know, I'm a trained professional. Why would you sell your home by yourself? It's, it's right. you're not going to get there. Same thing you have if, if you're facing a division complaint and it's, 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 it's relatively serious. You're going up against investigators who are trained investigators, that this is their profession, and against career prosecutors who this is their profession, and they believe it is their job to seek the maximum sanction against you. Uh, why would you go in there by yourself, least of which without your broker? Least of which without a plan. It right. It is interesting. And so, what is it? A man has himself for a client? A man who is, whatever is it? What is it? A man who represents himself is, has a fool for a client. There we go. So. There we go. Well, you will not find me <laughs> unrepresented in any issues. But um, I want to have you back. We've, we've, been, we've had a great chat. I, I know that uh, mostly realtors, uh, real estate professionals listen to this podcast and my mom. And uh, <laughs> so I know I have one listener, um, but I'd love to have you back sure. because I know that, first of all, you have uh, been highly sought out. Uh, you know, when I heard you were uh, re retiring, so to speak, from the Board of Realtors as counsel, I think I called you that same day and asked you when you could have lunch. Yes. Uh, because I knew I wanted to have you as our attorney here, given your breadth of knowledge and especially your expertise in real estate law. And you've written a lot of the addendums and contracts that we operate off of. So who better to have in our corner? So Dave Sanders, uh, the law offices of David B. Sanders. Uh, Dave is available. Give me your number, Dave. 702-290-1382. Uh, and Dave is, uh, as I can, I can personally vouch that he is probably one of the most well-versed, well-spoken, and uh, uh, just very deliberative attorneys that I've come across, especially in the field of real estate. So uh, give them a call if you have questions, but I'm going to have you back if you're good with that. I, I like to come back because I'd like to talk about, you know, we're coming out of, um, you know, the casinos. It's it's June 4th today. The casinos in Las Vegas opened up. Um, as we move forward through opening up through uh, both property managers and real estate professionals, I, I actually believe your potential liability is going to increase rather Wonderful. than decrease. And so I think it would be great to talk about ways that we can, I don't want to say COVID-proof your business, but at least ways to, to mitigate your risk um, going forward. Because, um, you know, for example, today, uh, the gap what got sued by the nation's largest uh, mall, um, nation's largest mall for not paying rent. They're asking for like $69 million. Um, you know, those types of things are, you know, we're coming up sometime soon. The eviction moratorium will end. Uh, the governor will allow um, open houses again. And all I can think of is the sheer amount of liability that you will potentially facing if you don't have your ducks in a row before all this opens up. Well, on that note, <laughs> stay tuned for my next uh, podcast with Dave Sanders of the Law Office's David B. Sanders. Thank you, Dave, for coming in this morning and, and uh, educating us. Thank you all for listening. This is, again, Jeff Lavelle, the broker of The Brokerage, a real estate firm. And this is Agent to Agent Remarks. We'll talk to you soon.